Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, we are going to do something unprecedented in the history of the podcast. We'll start with uh, the Gators women's basketball team. They're, they're on an absolute fire of a tear. Uh, I don't even know what that means. They've won seven of their last eight games since their top scorer transferred. Uh, they have beaten five ranked teams, three in the last couple weeks, and they're finally in the top 25 this week. Well-deserved at 19th. Just an incredible story. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, something that kind of shocked me was when they got, you know, first ranked this week and uh, people were tweeting out that it was the first time they'd been ranked since 2016. And I mean, it's incredible. It's also sad because I think we all kind of would expect um, Florida to be at a higher level than that. But the fact of the matter is it's been some rough, uh, it's been some rough seasons in a row. And uh, it's just cool to be talking about them for two reasons. I mean, one, they're awesome and it's, they're genuinely fun to watch. And two, um, people are tweeting at the show saying like, hey, can you touch on the women's team, which we're more than happy to do. Um, I can just promise you this. No one is tweeting at the show to talk women's basketball um, until now in the lifetime of the show. So um, I'll even say like, hey, here in Canada, I mean, they play Georgia on Saturday and it's nationally televised in Canada. And that's the first time um, I, I don't want to say ever, um, but uh, the first time I can certainly remember since, you know, following and watching college basketball i've seen um a florida women's game nationally televised so um pretty cool that it was uh you know canada wouldn't be the only place i'm sure there's uh, a bunch of the other countries as well that that have the sgn stuff would be uh seeing the gator women so um exciting time and i'm just really happy for the team and the girls and also just happy that there is a team that uh is worth being talked about and that uh florida fans want to talk about yeah no it's great to get those tweets uh and so it's they played five ranked opponent, opponents in a row, Eric. They're four and one in those games. And now the schedule kind of softens. Like there's not a team currently ranked um, on their schedule. They do have to go to Baton Rouge and LSU has been ranked uh, at times this season and is pretty good. But Arkansas down the state uh, a little down for by their standards, which is pretty high. Um, so you know, a real chance to get into the SEC tournament and and get a double bye, which is totally crazy uh, because, one, they won three games in all of conference play last year. Two, they played on Wednesday the last three seasons. <laughs> so uh, to go from Wednesday to Friday, um, and, of course, the elephant in the room, all of this under an interim head coach. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'm even looking at all the uh, all the rankings of, of course, the teams that Florida's playing, and it's like, uh, man, I think you know a lot of us would have thought uh, uh, it's like you know SEC football is the the toughest conference um, in in any sport, but man, um, SEC women's basketball, it's just crazy, and it's not like it's not like this is a a, a one time year where South Carolina is awesome and Tennessee is awesome, and um, it's like no, this has been the case for you know the last decade where it's like yeah, Kentucky's obviously always always relevant LSU is always relevant we know Tennessee and South Carolina are always relevant um and then Texas A&M is, is is in the mix now too so it's just like like what other sport could you see uh you know a, a, the last couple of weeks like like the women have had um just playing that many ridiculously tough games so um 
that's just something that's very unique to SEC or to, you know, the sport on the whole is like a schedule that these women are playing for the Gators. And um, like you mentioned, under a uh, under an, an interim coach who I will just say, you know, objectively speaking, um, run stuff that is entirely different than the last two head coaches, um, particularly the last one. Um, it is far more interesting. It is shown to be far more effective. And um, you just see how hard uh, how hard the team plays for her. Um, it's pretty clear that, you know, not even some of the players that maybe defended her um, publicly over the last couple of months, but you also can just look at like how hard they play on the court. Um, they seem to, uh, to really support her and uh, love her. So I'm wearing a, for people that don't know, we're recording on Monday night and I'm wearing my Virginia basketball shirt because um, Virginia basketball is awesome. And also because they're playing Duke. And uh, so Kelly Ray Finley, Loves her some blocker mover, Eric. And uh, it's it's really cool. She does some of that. She also, like, Florida doesn't really have two bigs. They kind of have, like, one big. And and then, I mean, I don't know. Jordan Merritt is what she is. But, uh, you know, I like that they'll, they'll post a forward mm-hmm. and a center and move them out, and then they can kind of choose. Uh, the ball handler can choose if they want the screen or not. Um, sometimes if somebody comes out to, to get on Kiki Smith, she'll then just read that and be like, Oh, you're too far out. So I'm going to blow by you and, and kick. Um, they just do a really excellent job of, of spacing, I think. Well, something you just touched on really quickly is the fact that they don't have like your prototypical, um, you know, elite front court player. And, and as much as we are always talking about the men's game and we can kind of like talk about how the role of post play has kind of changed. Um, when you watch women's basketball, it's, it's, it's very different than the men's game where um, still the best teams play inside out. Um, and that's the case um, in international basketball and the Olympics. Um, you see it in the WNBA right now. Um, you even see it in, in like, look at, look at the NBA draft the last couple of years. And then look at the WNBA draft and in the WNBA draft, that's still big time centers are, um, are really sought after. And for a reason, it's just that the kind of way that that game plays. So the fact that the Gators are playing in the sec, um, a league that has, you know, traditionally had the best players and always have had these like dominant centers. Um, and the fact that the, that Florida doesn't really have one, um, is, uh, or, you know, not to the same extent is, is, is pretty impressive. And then, um, you also look at the fact that they are winning games, um, with their guard play. It's kind of looks like the, the pro style game in, on the men's side or what the men's kind of college basketball looks like. And, um, I, I, I think it might even be a little bit just out of, you know, necessity. I don't know exactly. I'd be interested what, um, ideally what, uh, what coach would love to run, but the fact of the matter is right now, they've got a bunch of guards that are, um, outplaying the other team's guards and like, yeah, like I, I love Zippy. Like she came in and just like hesitated someone into oblivion in on, in transition, had one of the nicest buckets I've seen in Florida basketball in in years. So, uh, there's just so many players that are easy to cheer for and also just like an exciting brand of basketball. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's fantastic. And, you know, if you watch them just annihilate Tennessee, basically from tip to finish, you get that it's a team that clearly, uh, is feeling itself. They believe in themselves. Like, like Eric said, they have spectacular guards. Um, and you know, they're, they're the big, they do have, um, is good defensively and good at moving the ball. Um, which, you know, I think fits in with the rest of the personnel very well. Um, which I also think speaks to Kelly Ray Finley because Kelly Ray Finley recruited this team. She was the lead recruiter on almost all these girls, um, 
and it shows like she had a vision for it that maybe wasn't the prior coach's uh, vision. And, you know, um, now maybe she'll get to put her imprint on the Florida program if Scott Strickland goes ahead and does the right thing uh, and kind of erase the, the taste um, and the stain of the prior coach. I, I think that, um, you know, you look at football and everyone is going to, you know, pretty much stay three or four or five years. So that's why you see that, you know, talent really wins out a lot of the time. Then you look at basketball, it's very different. There's a lot of players that go for one year and there's a lot of players that stay for five or six. Um, so you can kind of win with a balance of, um, you know, freshmen or, um, or the transfer portal. So therefore like raw talent doesn't always win out. Um, it actually rarely does when you look at kind of talent composites. So it's very different between, you know, men's basketball and football. Um, but you look at, you know, then you look at the women's game, women's basketball, it is a lot of girls that are staying for multi-year. So talent really does matter. Um, I would say that recruiting in women's basketball is a lot closer to men's football, um, which might be a weird statement. I, I realize, um, but it just in the sense that it, it really is like the most talented team seem, seem to win in, in the women's game. And uh, therefore you really need a recruiter. I mean, again, I'm someone who said on this podcast, I often think on the men's side um, recruiting has been kind of, I, I don't want to say it's been, you know, overblown, but I do think some people, care a little bit too much about recruiting on the men's side and, and you can just like paper over holes so quickly with the transfer portal and, and stuff like that. Um, or cause you can, you can find ways to compete with the Kentuckys who have one year players by taking five year players. Um, but in the women's game, it's, it's like football, all the top contributors are in their third, fourth or fifth years. So it is a talent acquisition game and uh, that's why you need the best recruiter. And uh, that's looking, uh, looking pretty good with the intern. So you can only imagine what it would be like if uh, the intern tag was off. Yeah, and I think obviously they've got some compliance stuff they might need to do. I did get one tweet from somebody that is followed by some high-level accounts that was like, no, no compliance issues with Kelly Ray Finley. And I kind of thought like the lawyer in me that's done some of that uh, discrimination work uh, certainly was surprised that there couldn't be any, any compliance inquiries just because even if Kelly Ray Finley had nothing to do with what the prior coach was doing, she was on the staff. And so as long as that investigation is ongoing, it makes me think that, you know, maybe they just need to sit down and talk to her and they don't want to do that until the season's over. Um, Cause there's a lot of rip the interim label off. And I think certainly she's earned the job, um, but uh, we will wait and see right now. It's just exciting to, to think about, you know, Florida making a nice run in, in the women's NCAA tournament. Yeah, it truly is. And, and you know, I'll, I'll say it again. It's been a long time since, uh, well, this is the first time ever people have been tweeting at the show to want to talk women's basketball. And, and I'll be honest, I really did my best to support the team the last couple of years and trying to tune into games. And yeah, there was some rough watches. Like, I'll be, be honest. There was, you know, people will who follow me on Twitter will know I like to break down um, offenses the teams run and some things that they do interestingly. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be just awesome to do that about the women's team and, and provide some of that coverage that they're not getting? Um, I dug deep and uh, you will notice I didn't tweet anything out over the last couple of years. So um, yeah, I'd love to get into some of the blocker mover stuff uh, that, that she's running. So um, we'll see. We'll see. Watch out for that. Neil, you planted the seeds. So thank you. But uh, uh, like you said, hey, to be able to cheer them on in, in March and a team that like has better guards than a lot of teams. I mean, those are the teams that we see in the men's side all the time. It doesn't matter if, uh, 
you know, overall talent might be tilted in one, one kind of favor. If you got the best shot makers, anything could happen. And um, I could see the Gators uh, definitely upsetting a few teams, but what are we even talking about upsetting? I mean, they're ranked whatever they are now, and they're probably going to get ranked higher and uh, might be a pretty good seat. So we might not be talking about who are they going to upset? It's just going to be like, Hey, are they going to be a, make it up to a three or four seed and then just start, you know, mowing down lower seeded teams. Um, I'm really excited for it in a way that uh, I've not been excited for in uh, the history of me covering the Gators uh, men's team. And, uh, you know, really the most I've, I've been excited for even in, you know, my time talking the Gators. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely a really fun time and, and it'll be exciting to see them get back into action this week, shifting over to the men's game, the Gators, uh, Weathered the storm in what certainly was not a Picasso uh, in an overtime victory over Ole Miss. Graham Hall spelled in for you, subbed in, did a nice job uh, coming off the bench in the last pod. And one thing I said that I will pat myself on the back for to Graham was, it feels like a first to 60 wins game. And uh, Florida got 62 and, of course, was the only team to 60 and, and won in overtime. Yeah, I know the uh, the betters that always take over the Twitter conversation mad about, you know, whatever. We're all salty that the game went to overtime and didn't even sniff the over or whatever the over-under. So um, that's one way of just putting the fact that, yeah, it was a serious rock fight. I mean, um, you even look at uh, the way that, uh, you know, Florida's offensive numbers absolutely tanked on Ken Palm after, after that game. Um, it was a slugfest and... Uh, uh, Obviously, that's a little bit concerning for the Gators against a team that's, you know, okay off defensively, but, well, not great defensively. Um, and you have Castleton back as well. So um, I, I actually kind of want to kick off the offensive discussion with you, Neil. Um, so Castleton comes in, um, and uh, the Gators go to him over and over and over again. What did you think about that offensive strategy? Yeah, I didn't like it. Um, you know, I thought Florida had kind of found – a little more continuity offensively without Colin Castleton. I'm not saying that Florida isn't a better team without Colin Castleton. In fact, I think Florida's defensive numbers on Ken Palm are going to steadily improve as the season goes along. Now that Colin Castleton is back, assuming he stays healthy, there are other reasons for Florida's defensive numbers improving too, that we'll talk about. But um, I thought maybe just a little too soon to just go right back to the way that they were playing before. And um you know, maybe kind of a tough ask on Colin too. I don't know how well the shoulder was in particular, Eric. I'm not a doctor, but I didn't see him use his left hand as much as he was early in the season. Didn't really seem to, to be too interested in that. So, um, you know, I don't know. I was I was a little discouraged by it. It also meant less Koisi Reeves, which I think hurts Ford offensively. Yeah, like I've got nothing wrong with Colin Castlin as a player. I think he's fantastic and have sung his praises for years. I will say this. I think the opportunity cost of the Gators trying to post him up on every single possession is way too high. And it's just like you said, I mean, Kwesi Reeves, not really a part of the offense, was able to knock down some shots. Um, I would say the bigger one was, you know, Tyree Appleby comes off, you know, a heater of a couple of weeks, um, especially working in the pick and roll. And he's kind of iced out of the offense. I'll also say I think Florida's best offense was when they went to pick and roll. Um, especially late in the game with Colin Castleton and Tyree Appleby versus just trying to post him up. But when you go four out and one in and you're trying to post up Colin Castleton, um, you're just kind of getting out of everything else that's been kind of successful over the last couple of games. Right. And um, you also look at, like if you look at Florida's post-up numbers when they throw it into Colin Castleton, they're pretty good. They're like at 0.92 points per possession, which for a half-court possession is 
pretty good. However, that doesn't factor in the opportunity cost of all the other possessions where they spend 25 seconds trying to post him up or he gets posted up, he gets doubled, throws it back out and it ends up in a bad shot at the end of the clock. So I, I think those numbers are a bit misleading. So I, I do think the Gators need to find some balance of like, yes, Colin Castleton is fantastic and you want to use him, but it's also like, yeah, the opportunity cost is is massive there. So I had no problem with Colin Castleton's game, but it's like, man, it's like, are you going to get Colin Castleton 17 points at the expense of not getting the, or, you know, getting less out of, you know, some of these other perimeter guys that were just starting to, to play a little bit better. So um, I've got to say, especially on the second watch and looking at some of the numbers, it was like particularly apparent that it was when Ole Miss was fully aware that they were just trying to post up Colin Castleton and they were just still trying to force in Colin Castleton. That's where they got into some of their, their, their tougher stretches. And uh, I could have gone for gone for less of that. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. I like your point about the pick and roll as well. Um, you know, the evidence for that is in the box score. Tyree Appleby ends, ends the game with 10 assists. Uh, he snags a double-double. He becomes the fourth Gator player um, since 1996 to have a double-double while only making one field goal. Uh, actually, he's the third to only make one field goal because Kerry Blackshear – had a double double against Florida State without making a field goal, um, so he hit ten free throws for his double double. Um, but he joins Al Horford and David Lee, two uh, NBA champions. Well, I guess Al isn't an NBA champion. Sorry, Al. Um, he's an NCAA champion though. Uh, so he had an NCAA champion and a world champion. Um, and uh, yeah, um, that's the list. It's the, those four guys. All big men and and uh, the diminutive Tyree Appleby, who I think we all can agree really should stay the focal point of Florida's offense, as good as Colin Castleton is. And and I think, you know, you've you've made that uh, great point, Eric. And and you know, thirteen and a half minutes for Kwesi Reeves is okay. I'd really like to see that at sixteen or seventeen, to be honest. But you know, I understand that with some of the you know I don't know maybe who do you take those minutes away from? Are you going to take them away from Niles Lane? Probably not at this point. Are you going to take him away from Flanders Fleming? I don't know. Probably not at this point. Um, so it's just sort of like, who do you, who do those minutes come from? Brandon McKissick. He's going to get his fourteen or he's already down to fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, I suppose that would be the the trade off there of of. Uh, um... Like, well, it, it kind of seems over the last few games that it's been like Myron Jones or, or Kwesi Reeves kind of as your, your token spot up shooters. And um, you've seen Myron Jones um, fortunately start to hit some more shots, but um, I, I do think too, like Kwesi Reeves shifts were like really short and choppy. So it was like a, just a very choppy 13 minutes. I thought like didn't have much of a chance to get into rhythm. Like luckily he was able to hit some, some big shots when uh, the Gators could use them. And um, it just, but, but again, it's one of those things that like, I don't know, like, I, I wouldn't look at a Kwesi Reeves and ever want to see a two for three game from him. Cause I would rather him get six shots up than three and yeah, even Myron right. Jones to an extent as well, going two for four, I would have loved to see them get more touches. And that's the other thing too. I mean, a couple of games ago when we saw Myron Jones get going, it was like, Oh, they started to run floppy actions for, for Jones and got him free for a bunch of looks. And then we haven't seen them run that in two games. They actually ran it for him twice um, or one for him and one for Tyree Appleby against Ole Miss, but um, they didn't yield shots, which is fine. Um, but they just, it was just one of those things that, again, it's just like, okay, you just had success with it. You just got Myron Jones going. And now it's like, that's all gone at the expense of trying to post up Colin Castleton. 
Um, which I'll reiterate again, big fan of Colin Castle and no problem with what he did when he got the ball. It's just like the, the opportunity cost is, is so high where you see, um, some of these other players kind of getting frozen out and you see a game where, um, the Gators needed some, some big shots at the end to ultimately end at 0.94 points per possession. Um, so, uh, I think, you know, you mentioned it though. You mentioned Niles Lane gets a whole bit uh, more run. Why don't you talk about his game? Well, I wanted to do one more thing on that, the point that you just made about offense. I, I will talk happily about Niles Lane, but I, I will say, uh, so Flan Fleming shouldn't take eight three-pointers when Niall, when Kowasi Reeves goes two or three and Myron Jones goes two or four. So maybe that is where you lose minutes. That said, uh, Flan Fleming is really playing good defense right now. Um, and so – you know, when he's plus 12, like he was against Ole Miss, you know, it's tough to take him off. Meanwhile, Anthony Derugy was minus 10, probably one of his, his worst games. Um, and so I do wonder where Anthony Derugy fits in with Colin Castleton back. Like, it seems like they don't necessarily know what his role should be in a world where they're posting Colin all the time. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously he's shooting a good percentage, but on pretty low attempts, and uh, maybe you'd like to see see that a little bit more. Um, I mean, I'll also point out some people were kind of pointing out that like his percentages, like he's shooting thirty six percent. Like on the one hand, like I said, it's on really small percentages. I'll also point out that he's actually twenty seven percent in conference play. Um, in, in non conference, yeah, he got hot, but um, yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like. Uh, like I, we've always kind of wanted a little bit more from Anthony Derugia offensively, particularly when it comes to like attacking straight line, a defender that's slower footed than him. But like, again, the the thing is like, if you're going four out around Colin Castleton, that's just like, not a, that that's just not, not a role for that. Like he is like, especially in his position as a four, it's like he's standing in the corner and is not a very willing shooter. So like, yes would you like to see him cut more like that would be one thing but but again right now he's a he's a spot-up shooter and you just wonder like hey would you rather Flanders Fleming play the play the four and um or you know Kowasi Reeves at the three and Flanders Fleming at the four and just get more more shooting around um especially with Niles Lane getting more minutes because like Niles Lane will call him a non-shooter right now um I would almost go as far as to call Anthony Derugy a non-shooter um at like you know, slightly under two, three point attempts a game and 36% after a career of below average three, three point shooting and 27% in conference play. So it's just one of those things that like how many non, how many non shooters can you have on the floor, especially if you're just going to try to jam it into the post um, all the time. So uh, even just when you were talking about, you know, where would more minutes for like a Quasi Reeves or, or something like that come from? It's like, yeah, I'm kind of looking at uh even Daruji too, where I don't know. I just, I, I, I know that white has mentioned that he thinks he's a pretty consistent guy. And I don't know how much of that I like may, I think attitude wise, I'm sure that's true, but I, I think just like play wise, like even you mentioned, like some of the turnovers he had throwing the ball away were just like on, on nothing plays that were never there. And he telegraphed it and threw it with two hands and threw it away. Like, there's just, you know, he's someone who just for sure doesn't have great offensive instincts. And if the game isn't as simple for him as like, hey, you shooter, you drive in a straight line. Um, I don't know if he's he's the best option out there for the Gators. So um, I'll also point out too that, you know, you'd think that having him at the four would be uh like so this is one of my new lineup data things I really look at. Um, for the Gators who are just getting pounded on the glass, looking at different front court combinations and who's getting pounded on the glass. 
Um, you think that having Daruji at the four would be one of Florida's best options rebounding wise, you know, longer athlete um that just hasn't been the case for his two seasons you know playing in florida um he's not been an impactful um re- rebounder so even again you're like you know where does that how much worse would it be if you went smaller with a flanders fleming at the four um much less you know a, a cj felder who's kind of getting back in i'm not totally sure so yeah he's a he's a guy that um you know we know he's uh we know he's got the physical gifts we know he's kind of knocked down shots sometimes but uh i think we're all left wanting wanting a little bit more yeah, and uh, one thing we got more of was Niles Lane. First career start, uh, 28 minutes for Niles, um, a plus 10 in the box score. Uh, and he got a couple of rebounds. Offensively, he moved the basketball. He did not turn the ball over. Um, he did have one layup that was uh, rejected, but he made the right play. And I think there's some contact, but it was a clean block as well. Um so, you know, I, I mean, I you have to like what he's doing when he's on the floor. Offensively, he's just understanding that he's not really ready to score yet. Um, and he's accepted his role as, as a defensive stopper. He's the best lateral defender on the basketball team. Um, he'd be the best lateral defender on a lot of basketball teams. And he really does remind me of, of LSU's Milwaukee Wilkinson, who starts a bunch of games for them. Um, and you know, Will Wade plays him because he's a great defender and he figures I'm going to find points. Uh, he has not started quite as much for them this year because they have a defensive identity this season. But this last couple of weeks with their defense slipping, they've gone back to Milwaukee Wilkinson. It's just sort of like you need somebody out on the floor that can guard the best player. And what was really interesting to me was that so often Niles Lane was defending Jarkel Joyner and it made a huge difference. Absolutely. And, and I think that, that that's kind of, well, you know, Florida has multiple issues uh, defensively, but yeah, one of them is like, they don't have that like one a plus defender that they have been able to, to stick on the best perimeter option, the other team. And Niles Lane goes in that role and he's really good. And for him to kind of take a little bit of a smaller, smaller than him, shiftier kind of guy and, and handle him well, that's pretty big. And it, you could also just tell too, even when, when Niles Lane is a help defender because he's longer and because he is so quick, like even as a help defender, he's so much more, disruptive than a lot of the other options Florida has. So uh, it's like, yeah, on the ball, obviously awesome. But I also think it's pretty apparent away from the ball as well, that, that he's pretty good. And, you know, I, I it was pretty interesting. I, I don't remember the numbers, Neil, you asked for them and I, I sent them and now I don't remember them. I'll have to pull them up as I speak, but um, kind of talking about um, it, it wasn't like Florida's offense tanked with, with Niles Lane on the floor, which you thought it might, you might thought, okay, like, yes, you're getting slightly better defensive production, but you're, you're going to sacrifice a bit on the offensive end. And uh, that just, you know, ha- wasn't, uh, wasn't the case. Um, I tweeted out too that um, just kind of his uh, the, or the defensive numbers um, that I am pulling up in our message. So yeah, so the Gators only allowed 0.76 points per possession with Niles Lane on the floor. Obviously, that is incredible. Um, and really interestingly, with him on the bench, um, the Gators gave up 1.15 points per possession, which is like we've seen Ole Miss able to put up points on a lot of teams. And you honestly have to wonder if Niles Lane doesn't play this game. Is this another one that's kind of like um, a couple of years back where the Gators played Ole Miss twice, um, hammered Ole Miss in game one of the series. Um, Kermit Davis makes a bunch of adjustments and they hammer the Gators in, in the second kind of you know, meeting of the two. And I, I do kind of wonder if, if that would have been the case in this game. Cause you see like without Niles Lane on the floor, the Gators were getting cut up, particularly in pick and roll defense. Um, 
and I actually can't see if I actually sent you. I can't find the offensive numbers, but I remember the act, the offensive numbers were also better. Um, oh, sorry, here we are with the Gators with the with Lane on the floor. The Gators were at one point per possession offensively, which is not great. But with him on the bench, <laughs> it was zero point seven six points per possession. So shockingly, the same number of points um, that uh, they're giving up to defensively with him on the floor. So um, he was, you know, by that that's why he's plus ten. I mean, he's positive on the offensive end, at least from a on off or a, you know points per possession standpoint on off numbers um and obviously on the defensive end and i do think that like you mentioned he's the ball doesn't stick with him he's just looking to move it when he gets it and it kind of uh, allows the the offense to kind of operate decently even though he's not a threat right now to score yeah i mean when mike white's yelling motion the whole game um which is pretty much all i hear on my television uh unfortunately when florida has the ball at home um it there's motion when niles lane uh, gets the ball because he moves the ball and also cuts really hard. Um, and so, you know, cause that's the other thing, Mike White, you always hear is hard cuts. And, uh, you know, Niles Lane actually is, is a willing cutter and, and a willing passer. And that's fine right now. Um, we need him to develop a jump shot uh, in the last couple of years, the next couple of years. Um, but I think now that he's, you know, established himself as somebody that can, guard the other team's best player in the sec you know maybe he's not a guy that hits the transfer portal and what does that mean for florida long term i think that's probably good um because this team based on just the numbers you recited eric and let me ask you this it seems clear that florida's identity ought to be with colin castleton back let's play really good defense let's play hold Ole Miss to season low 18 points and a half defense and hopefully we can grind out enough points to win. Like it needs to be Virginia basketball pretty much. Uh, I get what you're saying. I just still wonder, is Florida ever going to be that team defensively, even with Niles laying on the floor? Like, yeah, we did right, see it right. against Ole Miss, but um, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, we talked about it a couple podcasts ago where it's like, you know, some people would say that under Mike White, the Gators have a, a defensive identity. It's like, well, the, including this year, it's three straight years of being below average defensively. So like, what is, what, what is, what does that tell you? And they've actually been a little bit better offensively. And um, you are seeing that like, yeah, even at this point of the season, um, the Gators still are, I would say lack some identity offensively. And I'll even point it out by like, Oh, here's a game where we run Myron Jones off a bunch of screens and he gets going. And then we don't see that play for a couple games. And um just seeing them getting away from some of the stuff that has worked for them. And then just like, okay, let's try to pound the ball into the post and, you know, see what happens and two you know, mediocre results. So I, I do think they've got to like lean one way or the other. And, and, you know, Mike White is a defensive coach. We kind of had said like, Hey, what are you going to, you know, can you be, what, what's this defensive culture? If your best defender is on the bench. Um, well, now we're kind of seeing that like, you know, with, with lane on the floor, maybe they can, they can be that team. So, uh, we'll see, but I mean, is there anything that would make this team, you know, super elite offensively at this point? I, I don't think so. Um, but you've seen that there is a chance that they, that they can be elite defensively with lineups with, with Niles lane. Um, so maybe I'll say, I'll say maybe to that one. I can see where I can see where your head's at and, uh, we'll, we'll see if it's another 29 minute load for, um, uh, for Niles lane or I, you know, I guess that that was adding in overtime as well, but we'll see if it's another start for him in huge minutes or we'll see if uh, they go another direction, but that'll kind of tell you what, uh, what they feel. 
Yeah, I mean, look, it, the their the job of the coaches is to put the team in the best position to succeed, and I don't think they're going to put them in the best position to succeed if they're not playing their best defenders because they're not good enough offensively to not do that. There's my succinct explanation uh, of that theory. I'm not, you know, people aren't going to like the product that much. It's not going to be real pleasing to watch. But if you want this team to max out and go to the NCAA tournament, that's where they've got to be because after the next game, it doesn't get any easier for Florida. Um, you know, they have a very difficult stretch uh, coming, a three-game stretch coming up after uh, the Georgia game. But in this one, they were able to get uh, to hold Ole Miss to 18 points um, in the second half, which I thought was is a really spectacular accomplishment. Um, and then uh, obviously just sort of grinded out enough points to get the game to overtime. And then Tyree Appleby takes over in the OT. I have a stat for you that is like one of the one of the crazier stats I think I've ever dug up, and uh, there was zero chance I was going to tweet it, but I will say it on the podcast. So I want your reaction to this. So the Gators beat Ole Miss, um, but in doing so, particularly due to their performance on the offensive end, they end up dropping five spots in Ken Palm to fifty first. Um, Neil, I want your reaction to this. So at 51st, that was the lowest the Gators have been in Ken Palm at any point in the Ken Palm era. So one could argue that this was like what we are currently seeing is the worst Florida team um, in the Ken Palm era. And I'm just curious what your reaction is to a stat that I found and was kind of like shocked by at first. And then I was like, huh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, if you watch them play, there's not, and this is why I go to this this defense mindset, right? Is what maximizes this team? Because if you watch this team play, what are they good at? Like they, I think you you nailed it a couple podcasts ago. Like they play hard. They they clearly like each other. Um, they care about one another. They seem to like playing for their coaches, uh, but. You know, outside of having a first team all SEC center, you know, probably second team too, because Oscar Shibway, depending on how they put him on the ballot, that Eric will get this year because it's his turn. Um, you know, I don't know. Like, I think it has to be a defensive identity. And right now, Eric, I think it is the worst team that that we've seen. And I don't think it's as bad as Donovan's last team, which that team started a walk on and, and was just really bad um, at pretty much everything. Uh, but, you know, it's definitely like if Florida makes the NCAA tournament with this team, it's just going to be hard work and kind of pluck and that they figured out a defensive lineup almost by accident because they were getting run out of their own building by Oklahoma State and Mike White got mad. So I have uh, just a few caveats. I needed to deliver the uh, that stat. Now I just a couple caveats just to be intellectually honest. So um, they were 51st on Saturday. Um, it, we're now recording on Monday, and they've risen to 49th. So 49th would be um, would tie. Um, I forget which season it was. I think it might have been Billy Donovan's last year, um, where they they were 50, 49th. So it's 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 the last eleven years of Ken Palm where you can see it every single game at every point of the season. What uh, what a team is at on on Ken Palm. Um, but before that, before two thousand and ten, you could just see with 
like what a team finished at and the 2010 Florida team, um, you know, with Irving Walker, Ken, Kenny Boyden, Dan Werner, Chandler Parsons, they finished the season 50th, but you can't actually see where they were at, you know, game to game to game. I'll also point out that they lost five of their last six. So I'm assuming that they kind of, you know, tanked in Ken Palm. So 50th was probably their low point. So, but just, just to be, you know, be honest about the stat, but in the last 11 years, you can see where the Gators have been after every single game, after every win, after every loss. And 51st is the lowest that the Gators have been at any point over the last 11 seasons. Um, So yeah, it's even interesting thinking about like, yeah, Billy Donovan having um, a losing season where they were never kind of close to the NCAA tournament picture. Uh, They didn't drop to 51, not even, you know, they were in the thirties most of the season. And then, you know, Mike White inherits that team. Um, They never dropped, you know, they, they, they lived in the twenties and thirties. They didn't, you know, get to to 50 or even low forties. So um, yeah, that's uh, that is where we're at. Just objectively speaking, Ken Palm numbers. There's no way I was going to tweet that though. I knew people would just like, I'm not like, again, I'm not trying to use that as some like slanderous look at, you know, sure. Theaters that I knew it would be that on Twitter. Uh, but I think it's a genuinely kind of interesting thing to look at. So for the intelligent, yes. for, for Twitter, no chance for the intelligent podcast listeners, for sure. No, it's super interesting. And, and yes, it was uh, Donovan's last season where they hit 49. Um, and I should correct myself because you just added a caveat. I said that last that Donovan's team wasn't good at anything. That's not true. Uh, they finished tenth in defensive defensive efficiency in Ken Palm. So I am wrong about that. It was that they couldn't score. Uh, Michael Frazier battled an ankle injury, and it's oh, it turns out he was just a spot up shooter and not really somebody that could uh, create his own look at all or drive. Um, so that was a problem. Dorian Finney-Smith hurt his ankle. Uh, so they had a couple injuries. And then they started Jacob Kurtz uh, because they had some recruiting misses. So, you know, that's that's where it was. Mike White gets a team. Obviously, they had Casey Hill starting as a, a freshman. Um, and we know that he wasn't the most offensively gifted player. So that's just kind of where Billy had the team at, where scoring was a struggle, but they still defended at an extremely high level, as all of Donovan's uh, late-year teams did, Eric. Florida has to embrace the fact that if they they have a great rim protector, I think if they want to go to the NCAA tournament, they've got to keep starting Niles Lane because he just gives them something that they're good at. So more Ken Palm numbers as we are recording the podcast. The Gators are 53rd in offense and 58th on defense. Um, let's say that Niles Lane is somewhere between let's like, let's say he averages 20 minutes a game the rest of the way. Like you've got your games where he, uh, you know, plays 29 minutes. Um, and then you've also, you know, probably got a couple where he plays like 12. Um, we've kind of seen that the Gators have floated between 40 and 60 in defense. Most of the season, um, with Niles Lane, I, I like, I'm not saying where the, will the Gators finish necessarily? Cause of course there's still a whole lot of sample without him, but like, you know, you mentioned you think the Gators can can lean into this, um, can lean into the defensive identity, especially with with Lane playing minutes. Like, do you see this as like a top twenty five defensive team if you're imagining Lane playing uh, big minutes, like better, or worse? Like, where are you uh, where are you at? I know that's kind of a tough open ended question. Though. Well, they're never going to finish there because there's too much season that's been played now. But I mean, do I think that they can perform at that level? Yes. Uh, you know, I think. I mean, no Ole Miss didn't have Deshaun Ruffin, but they got Jarkel Joyner back, who's one of the better scorers in the SEC. 
and what was it? 0.76, a possession, something really good. Uh, you know, they held Missouri didn't score 30 and a half. Missouri's not very good offensively. Oklahoma state has really good guards. The half that lane played, they scored 26 points. So, um, and we're well under a point per possession against Florida in that half. So like, I think Florida could continue to do that. Um, but again, for me, it's just like almost process of elimination. <laughs> like you're never going to be a top 25 type offense. So how can you give yourself the best chance to win? Oh, I just remembered something awesome as you were talking. Um, you know how we'll actually figure this out, Neil. Um, I, I, I mean, I guess I'm plugging him once again, cause I just think his site is amazing, but on Bart Torvik, you can, uh, put specific time parameters and you can say what, where did a team rank in Bart Torvik adjusted offense and adjusted defense That's awesome. over a particular time. So we will be able to on this podcast or anyone else because it's free, but let's let me and Neil do it for content purposes. No one cheat. Um, we'll go at the end of the season and look, you know, starting with, you know, the last two games and. We'll see how long Niles Lane plays, but we'll actually be able to use using Bart Torvik and and see where the Gators were in that particular time. Because like you said, I mean, we're so deep in the season, like a top 25 defensive finish is just not really um, not really in the equation. So shout out to Bart Torvik. Bart Torvik, who also has an amazing tool called Similar Resumes. Um, so you can look at where a team is in net and in KPI and Bart Torvik and Ken Palm and all the numbers that matter. And you can say, um, hey, what is this team most similar to historically? And uh, how did that team do in the postseason? So right now, if you looked at the Gators and said similar resumes, you would find that they have similar resume to no teams that have made the NCAA tournament. Well, on that note, Georgia comes to town on uh, <laughs> Wednesday night, 630. Uh, probably the – yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for anybody. They are the worst team in the Power Six, uh, With and I, I'm sure that somebody will hit me up and tell me that Boston College or Pitt are, are worse, and you know what? Boston College would punk Georgia. Uh, I don't know if Pitt would. So maybe Jeff Cable III has an argument, but Georgia is terrible. Um, so Charles Barkley, terrible. Um, now, that said, they just almost beat Auburn <laughs> at home this weekend. Now, Georgia has been absolutely atrocious on the road, uh, but they have played a little better at Stegman. So circle Saturday, February 26, all you people – who are waiting for the next Mike White mystifying loss, uh, you go ahead and prepare yourselves for that trip to Athens. But this Georgia team, um, you know, they got a lot of problems, Eric. Uh, and I think it really starts defensively. They just can't stop anybody from scoring. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I'll, I'll first say that uh, Oregon State's probably my pick for uh... – uh, worst high major team. Um, you know, elite I eight Oregon State. I know. I I, I doubted them before, back. and look what happened. Oh man, four that's starters just, back. In all seriousness, it does not get talked about enough at like how crazy it is the run they went on because of the fact that they were just like they were like in the hundreds, hundred and something thin Ken Palm leading into so the Pac-12 bad. tournament. Obviously, had like I don't think they were an they weren't even an NIT team. Um, before the Pac-12 tournament until they win it. And then they like, it's honestly like, it's, it's too bad. Like they deserve more credit for this elite oh, eight yeah. run because it was 
shocking. And their numbers were way worse than a lot of mid major, you know, quote unquote Cinderellas who have gone on similar runs. So, anyways, they, sadly, they sadly, the Beavers. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I mean, that's they just so killed them. <laughs> baffling. I I I really hope like they're so bad this year. They're three and seventeen. They've only beat Portland State, Nickel State, and then Utah in the Pac-12 opener. Um, then yeah, so then they have seventeen losses. They got hammered by Samford, by Princeton, you might be right. by, uh, by you UC might Davis. Be right. But I want them so badly to win the Pac-12 tournament again. Just somehow find a way to get back to the tournament because that'd be hilarious. But um, you mentioned defense with Georgia. It's like, oh man, it's crazy. They're 280th. Um, or I looked at it earlier. Might've changed their 280th before when I looked in, in Ken Palm's adjusted defensive efficiency. And like you said, I mean, they almost beat Auburn and they do it with their offense. If they could just be like slightly better defensively, they might have, you know, one of the biggest wins in, in college basketball. Um, you even saw them score a, you know, they were putting up points on, on Kentucky, a really good defensive team earlier, uh, but they couldn't get any stops on the other end. And um, that's kind of one thing is like, you look at how they can score and um, they've got some offensive ability, even though they don't have, you know, great players because they all transferred elsewhere in the sec. But uh, uh, to just be that poor defensively is like hard for a high major team to do, but uh, that's where we're at. And for a team like Florida who struggled to score, I think this is uh, maybe just what the doctor ordered. Yeah, you know, very well could be. Um, one thing that inures in Florida's favor uh, is that Georgia is dead last uh, in in all of Division One college basketball in block shots uh, allowed. So, you know, some of that is like that Tom Crean just wants their guards and their wings to drive at the basket and like see what happens. Um you know, that's not a very scientific explanation and Eric could probably tweet one out a little better, but the way that they attack the basket, I think opens them up to have some shots blocked, but dead last in that category is, is just kind of staggeringly uh, crazy for a team that actually is pretty good offensively. Like Eric said, um, you know, they've definitely scored a lot of points, but in their games against offensively challenged teams, South Carolina, Texas A&M, uh, Texas A&M was a close one. They, that was in Athens, a two-point game. Uh, they were just destroyed in Columbia by South Carolina. Um, so, you know, they lost by 23 to Auburn when they went to Auburn and then played them really close at home. Uh, but like Eric said, they, they put up 77 at Rupp. I mean, so they can score on pretty much anybody. Uh, it's just a matter of whether or not they can – manufacture a few stops they played some close games they could probably be a little better than six and 17 i guess um and then at the same time they lost to gardner webb man yeah that was a game where they they couldn't score um which is tough but i i do think you look at just the way that they're built um they are a team that's like you know they don't have many shooters um they like to post up a, a ton um and uh they're yeah the guards that can't shoot they they're trying to get downhill and um you know, Cario Quindo, his this sophomore has been, you know, actually really good for them. A junior college transfer. Um, he is like, well, he's he's their best offensive perimeter player. But again, somebody doesn't shoot, and they they just like love to get him off pin downs and off um, dribble handoffs to just try to get downhill. And I, I think that it's just like, yeah, when you're getting that many shots in the paint, you're just kind of gonna try to live with them uh, getting blocked sometimes. And um, again, it's almost concerning to me, like 
<laughs> a little bit from a Florida standpoint, just because Florida's rebounded so poorly. It's like, um, I think Colin Kassanen, you know, this could be a game he gets 10 blocks, which would be amazing. But it's like, yeah, we'll see how many second chance opportunities that come if it's, you know, someone having to, to rotate over and, um, or Castle having to rotate over and the Gators maybe getting into rotation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause it's like, yeah, Braylon Bridges, the six foot 11, 240 pound, um, transfer, um, who's actually, I mean, a pretty impressive story because like you, you look at, so he's a transfer from AC horizon and like he's, scored like nine points and five yeah he had like nine points a game and like five rebounds per game is what he was averaging so like far from like a dominant mid-major player and uh he transfers to florida or sorry to florida to georgia and now he's scoring like 13 a game and uh, getting six rebounds per game so i think it's actually a pretty impressive story that like as much as you know we kind of have laughed at some of tom crean's antics and the fact that he's you know loses players like crazy and you know just a general punchline often um i will say like pretty impressive for him to see a horizon league center that was um averaging nine and five and uh, takes him to georgia where he's you know 13 and six so uh, pretty good find for him and yeah he's a post-up player that yeah just keeps everything that georgia does um offensively kind of around the rim yeah i mean the only real shooters they have uh aaron cook isn't really a shooter that gonzaga transfer played in the national championship game um last year and is now at georgia he's a fifth year player uh, I think it's his third school because I think he transferred to Gonzaga too. I'm not sure about that. Don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, he's just another guy that's going to attack the rim. The, the only shooters that they have really are Jackson Etter, uh, who's kind of a slow, clunky guard um, that is not going to drive. He's just going to shoot. He's attempted their most threes. He's shooting 45% uh, from deep. So Florida's going to want to not let that happen. Um, and then uh, Noah Bauman uh, is the other guy that that takes high attempts. Uh, and Noah Bauman is shooting 42%. So they've got a couple guys who are shooting better percentages than anybody on the Gators uh, from deep. But like Eric said, they don't take a ton of threes. They're 217th in uh, three-pointers taken. So it puts them in the bottom half of college hoops. Uh, so yeah, I mean, they're going to, they're going to try to attack the basket. It's hard to talk about what they do defensively. I don't have the synergy numbers in front of me. Um, but the main thing is that they don't stop anybody. Yeah. I do think like, we just kind of talked about like the build of a lot of their, a lot of their guys is just like shorter, stockier, not athletic, not quick guards. And like, we know that that can be problematic for their ability to drive, but it's even more problematic for their ability to, uh, to move laterally on the, uh, on the inside. And, and, you know, as much as Braylon Bridges, I said, he was a really good story with his ability to, to score. Um, he's not a very good rim protector. He's not super mobile. Um, and that's, you know, I guess how you get to be uh, in the horizon league in the first place as a six foot 11, 240 pound center. So um, they have mixed in a few kind of like junkier zones. Um, we'll match up a little bit in a two, three, but um, tried pressing a little bit, but uh, it, it's all kind of about the fact that they just, uh, they're just not super athletic on the, on the perimeter. They're kind of short stockier guards. And uh, uh, I just think that they kind of give up a lot of dribble penetration, get in a lot of scramble situations. And when they scramble, they're just not quick enough to the ball to, to get to closeouts and find shooters. So um, just kind of a, a, a disastrous defense that like, you know, I, again, we'd love to just laugh at Tom Crean and, um, you know, have in the past, but I, I, I think this is uh this was really kind of a situation um, where it's, it's not always that like, it, it just matters who you've kind of got, um, you know, 
it's it's not always like oh it's just up to the talent on the floor but when it comes to defense a lot of the times it's like yeah if you uh if you are not athletic if you're not long you're gonna have troubles but you know you could also point to the fact that you know tom crean even when um he was in indiana and his teams were really really good um it was because they were fantastic offensively and not very good defensively still and that's kind of why they flamed out in the ncaa tournament um so that's been a little bit of tom crean's kind of mo for his whole coaching career is like really good offense not so good defense Yeah, they're also the one team. They're in a bad league to not be able to rebound. Um, you know, like just like Florida, <laughs> but worse than Florida at rebounding. Noah Bauman, a, a guard, has led them in rebounding in SEC play. Gives you an idea of like what a struggle it is for them on the glass. So I think Florida will have a really good chance to get second chance points uh, in this game, and that that could ultimately be decisive in a game. I I predict. Uh, if I were a betting man, I would bet on the dogs with the spread. Um, but I think Florida will win. Well, it's unfortunately another devastating 630 start, um, which is not great for the Gainesville atmosphere. Um, it's also uh, one thing that's pretty crazy. So Georgia is yet to win a road game yet this season. Um, so Neil, I know you would just be so heartbroken on so many levels um, to lose this one. Um, and again, yeah, this would be, I, I, they're 200 and something in the net. I looked earlier and that means, yeah, Florida playing them at home. That's like, you know, quad losing four. to them. Qu yeah. Quad four, it'd be like losing to Texas Southern. So, um, you know, I hate to be so like, oh, it's must win, must win, whatever. But like, honestly, like, I mean, I know we talked earlier in the season weeks ago, months ago about how many teams have taken a quad four loss and made the NCAA tournament as an at large. And that number is pretty low. Um, I didn't even look to see how many teams with two quadrant four has losses has have made the NCAA tournament. I would guess that number is, you know, likely zero. So um, this is a game that uh, man, it's as, uh, it's as important as, as ever. I mean, Neil, you mentioned it's like every game down the stretch is, is kind of huge for the Gators, but it's like, yeah, there's a couple that, you know, they lose and you lose to Kentucky on the road. It's like, okay, you know, like that's not, that's obviously not going to hurt them, uh, man. This could be uh, this could be a bit of a death blow. So, uh, it's concerning. I will say like one thing that like for Georgia who has showed that they could score on some pretty good teams such as Auburn. Um, it's, it's kind of been like, especially like looking at how they scored in Auburn, it was like their guards were a little bit bigger, a little bit more physical. Um, we're able to get downhill. I, I do look like as much as I've been, uh, you know, critical at times of Brandon McKissick's defense. I think this is like a perfect matchup for him. Um, a couple stockier guards that he can kind of bang with on the outside. And of course, Niles Lane as well. We know he's quick, but he's also physical. So I also think that Florida is going to be able to have some, some success in, in perimeter defense. Um, whereas like, you know, they've had kind of trouble with the smaller, speedier, shiftier guards. It's like, that's not these Georgia guards. They're, they're physical and, um, you know, want to drive, drive downhill and create contact. And I, I do think that it's a pretty solid game for, for a Niles Lane and, and a Brandon McKissick as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, look, they need to win this game. It's a must win game. Um, Mike White's gone to Rupp and won twice. He's beaten one very bad Kentucky team in Rupp and one very good Kentucky team in Rupp. Uh, the very good Kentucky team he beat in Rupp, um, Chris Chioza played marvelous, and oh, Florida had Chris Chioza. Um, so those are two very important points about Chris Chioza uh, that helped Florida win in Rupp Arena. Um, I love Tyree Appleby. Uh, he ain't Chris Chioza. So um, there's my hot take. Uh <laughs> So yeah, I don't I don't see it happening. 
um, at Kentucky. Then Florida comes back Tuesday and I think plays a huge bubble game uh, at Texas A&M, which is going to be right on the edge of quad two, quad one, depending on what the Aggies do this week. Uh, so, you know, that's a big chance for Florida, I think. And then uh, home against Auburn, again, not terribly optimistic about that. Uh, and then I think the game that they'll play for the NCAA tournament, uh, if they beat Georgia, would be the Arkansas game the following Tuesday. And I really wish that Florida-Arkansas were the weekend game. I know people are excited that number one's coming to town. But, like, from an atmosphere perspective, like Tuesday night against Arkansas for a bid to the NCAA tournament, like, gosh, I'd really love the atmosphere to be great, Eric. Yeah, and I don't know exactly how the Gators would want to, like, market this um it's it's a little doomsday to be like hey this is like make or break ncaa tournament time but um i i hope that there's some organic you know groundswell of of information from florida fans that are aware that that is going to be a team between two bubble teams that 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 really need it to to make the ncaa tournament so that all starts with the the you know, intelligent listeners of this podcast. So um, of course, a lot of you don't live in Gainesville, but you know, you know, people who, who do, and it's like, yeah, that's, that's going to be a huge one. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just that, man, the six thirty start against Georgia, that's just rough, but uh, um, it, it definitely all starts there. And um, again, it's a team that home court, you shouldn't be like, wow, we really need to have a, a rock and O dome to overcome this um, Georgia team. It's like, yeah, it's a quadrant four game. Um that's that's pretty terrible, um, but uh, yeah, we're at we're at this point where it's like, yeah, this is uh, this could be a death blow. So uh, it's it's I know must win is 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 obviously thrown around so often in college basketball media, but uh, like I said, the number of teams that uh, have suffered two quadrant four losses and, and made the NCAA tournaments, I haven't even checked. I'm gonna guess that number is probably zero. I think it's a big bagel, uh, and so yeah, death blow type game. Uh, start planning for the NIT if, if Florida loses. Um, and the other thing about this is, well, obviously you don't want to lose on your home Florida team as bad as Georgia. Uh, um, but like, I've been giving this some thought and like Georgia's facilities are okay. Uh, they're kind of like middle of the pack in the league, but you know, they do have the benefit of being the home school state uh, in Atlanta, which is a huge talent hotbed and Tom Crean might be kind of a dead man walking regardless of how the season uh, goes. The buyout is now under 5 million for the first time. So they can maybe come up with that money with some of that national championship bread that they got from the football program, uh, spread the love a little bit. You know, that was always a big thing with Nick Saban sooner or later, Kirby smart is going to be like, we need to be good at basketball and they're going to do what Kirby says. Um, so Georgia could go out, get a hire, get their Nate Oates type and, and really, you know, get good. Uh, it's been a really long time since they were good at basketball. Um, uh, so, you know, Florida needs to step on their throat a little bit. Well, I was going to, you know, mention it first. I'm not sure if, you know, Tom Crean is aware that it's kind of the state school of basketball hop at Atlanta, because I know a lot of people from that area were uh, not really happy with how he was not really recruiting <laughs> from there and instead was, was going elsewhere. I think Braylon Bridges is, is from Atlanta and obviously brought, brought him in as a, as a transfer. Um, I think a couple of the other transfers are, are, are Atlanta guys. So maybe he's kind of starting there, but um, 
yeah, I mean, when you look at just what uh, what Arkansas has become and, and of course, Alabama, I think you can pretty easily say it's like, well, I think like any one of those coaches would rather be recruiting Atlanta than anywhere in Arkansas or anywhere in, in, in Alabama. So uh, definitely some advantages there. And then you also see like middle Georgia is getting so many, um, so many great players here recently. We saw, of course, like, you know, Jabari Smith and Sharif Cooper, and of course, Kwesi Reeves. So even middle Georgia is starting to, to really kind of um, come up in, in basketball and, and challenge, you know, Atlanta for, for some of the best players there. So um, that, that it is one of those things where you're like, yeah, I wonder how long Georgia wants to wait around being, six and 17 um, and playing a quad four road game against the, or for the Gators. It's like, yeah, I think that that's uh, they might be able to strive, you know, further. And like you said, um, the trickle down from football um, appears to be real. If we're looking at, you know, recent history of um, coll- collegiate athletics. Yeah. I mean, I just think that there's obviously a pretty tangible benefit to having a really good football program. And those coaches like to put the recruits in buildings that are rocking. And so they kind of, exert some influence to make sure that you get basketball right too. And I think it's just a matter of time before Georgia does that. doesn't mean that the next hire is going to work. Um, but I mean, Mark Fox was consistently winning like 20 games a season there. They were just going to the NIT a lot. They were in the first four out or next four out a lot under Mark Fox, um, who did recruit in state uh, almost too much, really. Like he just had a team full of Georgia players like Eric said, they have Brandon Bridges and Jackson Etter from the Atlanta area. That's really it. Um, so, and Jackson Etter was the only one who started at Georgia. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, just not a game the Gators can lose. So we'll let Eric uh, sign us off. And um, it was fun to talk women's basketball tonight, too, at the top of the show. Yeah, let's keep. But uh, let's keep winning, ladies, and we'll happily keep talking about you. That'd be uh, that'd be awesome. I'm uh, I'm so excited to watch them in March. That's going to be good. Uh, go Gators and keep attacking closeouts.